Welcome to my basement, everybody. We've got a very special episode for you today, and we are highlighting all things Prince of Persia. Prince of Persia, The Lost Crown, is hitting consoles and PC gaming systems everywhere, and it's an incredible game. Check out my review on the game if you'd like to learn a little bit more about how I feel about it. But I thought it would be an amazing opportunity to talk with the person that created Prince of Persia himself. Jordan Mechner is here with us today. And joining him is the editorial director at uh, Digital Eclipse. His name is Chris Kohler. He's been on Vic's Basement before. And recently, this duo collaborated on the making of Karataka. Uh, I'm choosing Karataka, I guess. That's what came out of my head. I know you say it a bunch of different ways, but that's how it came out. (laughs) Jordan, let's start with you, my friend. How are you doing? And where in the world is Jordan Mechner? I'm great. Thanks. Uh, Great to see you. I'm actually in Montpellier, a small town in the south of France. And that is Montpellier behind me. Uh, It's the uh, cathedral and... uh, this is where the Lost Crown was developed. Uh, it's the home of a great team, and it's where I've been living for the last seven years. I'm uh, originally from New York. Yeah, that's that's completely a, a mind trip for me. I've been to that Ubisoft Montpellier office before. It's an incredibly collaborative and creative space. Uh, I was there for the making of King Kong back in the day, and I just mm-hmm. got it was a, a really amazing escape because it's so removed, I think, from a lot of other developments in the world, although there's probably a nice bustling community of game developers out there. But it felt like it, this isolated oasis in game making. Is is that what you've discovered while you've been yeah, living? I mean, Montpellier has a wonderful creative community. Uh, it's got a lot of universities. I mean, it's got Ubisoft, one of the biggest studios here. It's got a lot of smaller indie studios. Uh, Eric Chailly is here. Uh, there's others. And there's also a great uh, graphic novel and comics uh, author community. Uh, so this uh, last three years, I've spent uh, writing and drawing my first graphic novel. It's a new medium for me, although I've written uh, scripts for graphic novels, collaborated with great artists. This is my first time writing and drawing. And so what's behind me is actually my rendition of Montpellier, my memoir replay, which uh, was just published here in France and is coming uh, in English in March tells the story of why I came to Montpellier, the video game project that brought me here. Uh, and uh, it's the, it's also the uh, the story of the history of Prince of Persia and of Karateka making games from the 80s until now, as well as my family's story. That's amazing. Uh, one of the things that I am so impressed about you uh, is the... You've, you're this groundbreaking game developer who really saw that video games could be about storytelling and very cinematic and you use rotoscope technology to build the original Prince of Persia. But you're also, uh, like, I think a groundbreaker in terms of documenting all of this material and sort of doing these behind the scenes kinds of looks at how difficult it is to conceive of these things and actually see them come to fruition. And Chris, it, it must have been amazing to work with a person that had the foresight in the 80s to gather all of this material and keep shooting this material and writing the journals when you're working on a project like the making of Karateka. I mean, it must have been incredible to have that that fount of information for, for you guys to play with. 
Well, it was, yeah, it was, the, it was a, a dream project in, in that sense. Right. Because I mean, Vic, you know, you've, you've played things like uh, Ninja Turtles, the Cowabunga collection. You've yep. seen things like Atari 50, uh, the anniversary celebration where, um, you know, we've, we've done, we've had to do so much digging um, to find any little scrap of information that we possibly could about the making of these classic games, because you know, a lot of times people would sit down at their computers and and they'd they just be staring at a blank screen and they would create a video game and they would be done in a week or a month or something like that. And then right. they sort of emerge from their from their office or their bedroom or whatever it was, um, you know, in a haze of marijuana smoke. And then there was a finished <laughs> video game. And, and it's like that's how these things were kind of created. There was no documentation. So Jordan was a very interesting creator in that. Well, first of all, I mean, I, th I think that, you know, and certainly, he can, you know, he can speak for himself on a lot of this stuff, but, you know, he was taking inspiration from so much of the world around him uh, and not just video games. Um, right. So, you know, he, he really did sort of meticulously document the creation of everything, but it's very, it's great for us that, again, you know, saved all the floppy disks. And of course, it's wonderful that Jason Scott, Tony Diaz, guys from the Internet Archive were able to come in and actually, um, you know, uh, uh, actually take all those floppy disks and extract the information from them, which was crucial. Um, and then, you know, that Jordan just he did so much of his designing on paper um, that, you know, and then saved all of that, donated it all to the Strong Museum of Play. And so to start out this project and just have and, and we still did more research and we still went out there and found more stuff, but just, just have it all um, was, was so important. And yeah. So in, in that sense, it was this, you know, this wonderful, it, and also it, it's never going to happen again. Like I've, I had to resign myself to the fact that like, there will never <laughs> there aren't be a lot of other Jordan Mechters out there. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, even, well, the thing is, even with, you know, with, with Prince of Persia, if you read Jordan's Prince of Persia journals, um, I think, and, and Jordan, you know, again, you could really speak to this, but it's like, when you, once you got into Prince of Persia, you were really kind of just, you were firing on all cylinders at that point. Right. There wasn't right. as much of a, you know, you don't really see like, you know, oh, I'm struggling with this and I'm struggling with that. And how am I going to do this? And how am I going to work on this aspect of the game? When you read the Prince of Persia journals, it's more like, I know what I'm doing and we're doing it. And I'm at Broderbund and I'm making it happen. Yeah, it's the difference between the angst of being 18 and the great maturity and perspective that comes with being 22. <laughs> Jordan, I, how did you define yourself back then? Because I know, you know, you've got all of these artistic interests and, and potential directions and you, you've chased a lot of these artistic endeavors over your life. I, I, I hazard to call it a career because you've had multiple careers at this point. How do you define yourself? Did you think of yourself as a game maker? It feels more like you're a like a holistic storyteller. Like you like to talk about things in a bunch of different medium. I think storyteller is probably the common thread, you know, between the yeah. different media, between making games, uh, writing film screenplays, filmmaking, and now graphic novels. I mean, for me, programming games was a, a means to an end. You know, it right. wasn't that I loved programming and then I started making games. It's like when the Apple II came along, you know, I was 14 years old. And at that point, until then, my love had been animation and comics. I was writing and drawing my own comics. I maybe, you know, I love Disney animation. And if the Apple II hadn't come along when it did in 1977, I might have continued on that path. But uh, the incredible thing about the Apple for me as a kid was that I could make a game and nobody would know that it was a kid who made it. So if I could uh, do the animation and 
uh, do everything well enough, it could uh, be published along with you know the real professional games, and nobody would know. And so that was just incredibly enticing. And uh, I learned to program, and I learned you know I figured out how to do the animation on the Apple, basically because I wanted to tell a story. I wanted to make a little interactive animated movie, and that was uh, Karateka and uh, Prince of Persia really were games that were inspired by film as much as uh, being inspired by other games. Yeah. Take us back to Prince of Persia. Was that something that you started with a title and then you built the game to it? Or how did it come together and what, why why choose this ancient Persian kind of empire as, as your setting and your background? You know, I think it's one of those things that uh, at the time it was just, it seemed like not even a decision. They're just like, yeah, that's good. In retrospect, I have to say that I, it's almost like a destiny. Yeah. There's, and one of the subjects of a replay of my graphic memoir is how many forces were kind of leading to that, that I wasn't even aware of. And some of them like go back uh, through the generations to my family history, things that I didn't know, or I thought I didn't know that I only became mm. aware of when I sort of, you know, looked into the archives and started to, you know, work out the backstory. And I realized how much was pointing to, you know, Persia and this 2000 year old storytelling tradition as the setting for this game. But at the time I was uh, on the Apple II, I was just looking for a practical solution. It's like, okay, this is going to be a running jumping game. I need something that I can uh, render with the 280 by 192 graphics of the screen. Uh, hey, what about Arabian Nights, Persia, Thief of Baghdad. At that time, I didn't even know that Persia was different from Thief of Baghdad. It was just sort of part of this collective unconscious fantasy of yeah. you know, a world where there were palaces and princes and viziers and imprisoned princesses that uh, uh, you had to climb a wall and rescue. And I, I don't even know where I got it, You know, from movies, certainly, from children's books of the Thousand and One Nights. But since then, over the years, my interest, my fascination with Persian culture has just gotten uh, deeper and, and deeper. And uh, there's just so much behind it now. And I think that's really, you know, so key to the longevity of Prince of Persia and the fact that it spoke to so many people around the world. You know, this combination of modern video game technology, modern, you know, in 1979, <laughs> you know, with uh, this uh, ancient pool of, uh, of archetypes and stories that it's really a treasure of world culture that we all kind of know without really knowing it. Right. And I, I, I have to credit Prince of Persia and the series now because it, it, it's become much more than just this, you know, endeavor of a young man trying to like make his name. It has really grown into something. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But I think you can really credit Prince of Persia and some Assassin's Creed, which sort of came out of that for us to kind of through the prism of video games to look into these histories and to this, this, you know, wealth and treasure of storytelling and, and um, I don't know, all these incredible destinations. Chris, let's talk a little bit about what Prince of Persia meant for you, because I'm sure you were on the road to, to being a, uh, someone that covered the video game industry when th that game came out in the late eighties and the early nineties. What, what did, what did you think of Prince of Persia when you first played it? Well, I mean, you know, certainly what what I'm, I'm trying to think of 
well, first of all, what was the um, where did you play it? Platform yeah. that we played <laughs> yeah. it on. It would have been the IBM PC. It would have been probably the IBM PC like VGA uh, version, um, yep. which was I mean, it was lovely. And I mean, I think that as um, as maybe a little like younger um, kids at the time, my brother and I were a little bit less um, patient with a game that would let you, you know, play for a while and then, you know, instantly die and then and then no, you're dead, go all the way <laughs> back to the beginning. Um yeah. and I think as an adult, it's a little bit more, you know, you I think you appreciate that a little bit more, you know, that sort of like gradual building. It's almost like a roguelike in that. It's sense, a roguelike. Right? Yeah. Yes. It's the yeah. first Souls game. <laughs> yeah. Um and uh so we had played uh, some of Prince of Persia one. I don't think we ever I think that, you know, I, I definitely have memories of like maybe even watching my brother play. I'm like, oh, he's like so much further than any of us have ever gotten because he was on like level three or whatever it was, you know? And, um, and, uh, but I, I, A, I, I remember the, um, the, the, the rotoscoped animation or, or really, you know, not really having any clue at that time how it would have been made. But I remember right. the, the beauty of the animation of that game as being something so striking and, um, the way that the character jumped, you know, like throwing his arms out in front of him and lunging with one leg to sort of jump across this platform. It was unlike any other video game character had ever jumped. And it was so striking and so memorable that um, in probably the year 2003, 2004, when G4's show, I think it was Icons, you know, yeah. uh, aired, and um, it was talking about Prince of Persia. It was talking about Jordan. I think it was Icons. And it was, and it showed, and it, you know, I saw for the first time ever the the rotoscoping footage of of Jordan's younger brother David in the whatever looked like a parking lot, um, jumping and doing the jump. And it just blew my. I mean, I, when I saw that footage of that yeah. jump for the first yeah. time. I, yep. my jaw dropped because that was the jump and to see this iconic video game move and to see the the film that it came from and to see it this perfect one-to-one -one thing you know to, to essentially look at it backwards seeing the, the finished result and then where it came from that absolutely left such an impression on me and I had such a such a respect at that point for you know that what had been done to to achieve that and of course then you know, thinking back on it, it's like, oh, and that's why the prince jumped so much differently than every other video game character, because right. it was actually based on it's not that Jordan was like cutting corners by saying, oh, I don't know how to do animation. So I'll just rotoscope it. It was like, no, 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 no. It's in doing that. It's like, how does an actual human being, how would yeah. they jump over a gap and they'd throw their arms forward and they'd lunge forward in a way that was, you know, totally natural and um, didn't was not this sort of affected or or totally artificial, you know, video gamey animation. And so that process, you know, really just created something that was so um, so unique and so memorable. Um, but I have to, I mean, and I'm sure we'll we'll get into this, but I'll kind of leave it here that the 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 Prince of Persia game that you know truly um, grabbed me was uh, was was Sands of Time. Oh yeah, we're definitely going to talk about that. Yeah. Uh, it, it is amazing because when you look at some of that footage, it evokes uh, you know black and white newsreel footage of Disney animators and how they kind of worked out their systems to make their animations look so real. 
And it's the presence of mind, Jordan, for this you as a young person to recognize how this was going to emotionally connect with people, because I, I feel like that was the impetus. Like you, you really wanted to, you know, make us feel something, not just play it and have a good time. You wanted us to feel something. But for you to include your family that that must be because I know your father worked with music on on uh, karateka and and to, it must be amazing for you to see the threads of your your history and your family in your work like that. Yeah, both karateka and Prince of Persia were really family projects, uh, and uh, as the making of karateka shows, you know, my dad didn't just compose the music; he was uh, an important sounding board for me, and he actually put on a karate outfit and. Uh, you know, climbed up onto our family car to climb the cliff at the beginning of the game. I mean, That's I rotoscoped my dad on Super 8 uh, film, you know, several years before I videotaped my brother, David, in, in our high school parking lot with the, the much improved brand new technology of VHS. <laughs> uh, and, and, bo and both times it was, the challenge was how to get that footage into the computer. Onto a computer, yeah. I mean, I didn't realize that I was kind of reverse engineering or finding a, like a digital equivalent to the rotoscope that had been invented in the 1920s by animators. I just knew yeah. that I, I wanted to get that sort of rawness and uh, like lifelike feeling and the imperfection also of what an actual human will do. I mean, the way my brother jumped, I mean, he's not an athlete. He's not a stuntman. He was 15 years old and uh, didn't like sports really any more than I did. And uh, so the way he jumped, it, it was charming. It gave uh, the character a personality and that comes through even when it's reduced to pixels. So there's something really magic about rotoscoping in that way. I mean, I didn't, I knew what I wanted. I knew that I wanted the player to, to feel for the little character on the screen and bond with them and actually like, and hands would start to sweat on the joystick because you don't want to fall. You don't want to fall on the spikes no, because you're right, going to yeah. feel like you don't want to hurt that guy. Uh, so I knew what I wanted. I just, the question was just how to achieve it. And so the rotoscope was really born out as a technical solution, you know, out of necessity. Yeah. And I don't want to be reductive about games that are just purely uh, about impulse and instinct and skills and, and they're just fun. Um, but I just, I just played the last of us part two remaster again for a review. And I was struck by the filmmaking know-how and the processes, because there's commentary in this remaster and, it, there's something applicable here. You know, I can see that through line back to the work that you were doing in the eighties, thinking uh, about games as this filmic, potentially filmic medium with beginning, middles and ends to the plot. And uh, the challenge is kind of being rooted in emotion, which I think is really incredible. I want well, to talk that, a little I mean, bit though. One of the points that we really wanted to make with the making of Karataka was that when you look at stuff like, you know, this, the, the last of us two, you know, remastered, you know, the, the yeah. absolute you know, state of the art and video game narrative that if you start going backwards and you say, well, what inspired Neil Druckmann and then what inspired him and what inspired, what inspired that person and that person and that person, eventually you're going to get, you're going to get back to Karataka. And it's yeah. a game that um, not enough people have really heard about. And it's the point that we were trying to make is that um, this sort of very, very foundational work um, that Jordan did on Karataka in creating that type of game that of course, you know, Prince of Persia was then the sort of the next evolution of that creating that cinematic game, creating that game in which you, you know, you feel something for the characters on the screen, doing that extensive use of, of cinematic scenes um, paired with the animation, paired with um, his father, Francis Mechner, that, you know, the, the, the really one of the first 
true soundtracks, the first true movie-like yeah. musical scores that was written Brother, for a video game. Cheers to your dad, too. Like, honestly, yeah. it's like what a beautiful tribute to your to you and your passions to to support you in that really fantastic way. You know, it's it's yeah. amazing. Right. But it's not, so this game came out, it's not that this game came out and was forgotten. It's like this. This game really did have this major impact on a generation of designers who looked at Karataka and said, this is the power of video games. This is right what on. we can do to tell stories. And I absolutely think that you see that that pathway. And it's so important that we not forget that is the point that yeah. I want to make. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I, let's talk a little bit about rotoscoping in video games because the success of Karataka and uh, or Karataka. <laughs> it's like every time I come to the word, it's like, how the hell do I? Yeah, you know, we, like we didn't have the internet then, so there was no way to standardize how we were supposed to pronounce <laughs> things. True, so we all just right. said it our own way. <laughs> well, when, when you play uh, Karateka, let's try it that way, and Prince of Persia, uh, they're so influential as well. We start to see some other rotoscoping games. I remember Blackthorn and being so impressed by that and and uh, Flashback and uh, Another World. I, what was it like for you, Jordan, to kind of be? I I, I don't I, I don't know I don't know if I'm putting this title on you, but you kind of represent to me the father of rotoscope video games or rotoscoped animation and video games. What was it like for you to see other companies and other creators attempt that that Prince of Persia style? Well, you know, I, I never felt proprietary about it. Uh, I didn't invent rotoscoping. I mean, it, I mean, Max Fleischer patented it in the yeah. 1920s, and I didn't even know that. You know, for yeah. me, it was just oh, we did. That I, I needed at that. that moment. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, I used rotoscoping again for the Last Express in the 90s, uh, yeah. but in a different way because there, that was a a point-and-click adventure game with a realistic 3D depiction of a train, the Orient Express. And uh, so I wanted a cast of characters that would be very specific, that would have human expressions, each their own way of moving, you know, their own uh, costumes. And so, to, you know, we outfitted the characters with, uh, you know, crazy costumes with lines on them and makeup and wigs that were designed to come through clearly in the rotoscope. And, uh, you know, the goal was a kind of something like a liquid pen and ink type drawing, like the Art Nouveau style of Toulouse-Lautrec, which was appropriate for the period. But that was right. very different uh, from the rotoscoping of uh, Karateka and Prince of Persia, which were action games. So I think really every project is its own thing. And, uh, you know, the motion capture that's done today is, I mean, it's incredible, like technologically compared to what we were doing, you know, in the 80s. But it's... Uh, you know, it's it's a tool also with its strengths and limitations and uh, poses new challenges. So it's, I mean, I think it's just fascinating to see. I mean, I, we all knew that the medium was going to evolve. Yeah. You know, in the 80s, we knew, we sensed that we were at, at the beginning of something, that this was going to somehow be a new art form. But I, I don't think any of us could have imagined how fast it would happen. And how yeah, far I think we're... We're on the kind of the precipice of that, I think, with AI right now, too, and how quickly it's being adopted and, and potentially corrupting all kinds of the world. I want to talk to you guys a little bit about your thoughts on, on AI as uh, an artistic tool. Um, but so you were never threatened by any of these other rotoscope games or, or you, you, you didn't look at them and think, oh, you know, they're just they're riding my coattails or anything like that. It was just like it just made sense for you. Yeah, I mean, Prince of Persia was already riding the coattails of uh, uh, Load Runner, 
Choplifter, uh, Mario, and, and the first 10 minutes of Indiana Jones, the movie, yeah. as well as thousands of years of Persian storytelling. Uh, so I, I feel like we're all part of a continuum. You know, we were we inspired are. by the things that we experience and that we place and see, especially when we're young. And you know, then we we make something. And if we're lucky, the thing that we make is going to be enjoyed by people who are then going to take it and make it their own and do their own thing. So I just feel honored to be part of this parade. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and uh, you know, congrats uh, again for a new Prince of Persia game out this week as we're recording this, which is just incredible. Um, but let's talk about the pivot from... And I think motion capture is this kind of interesting line that you can trace back to rotoscoping. Rotoscoping, in a way, is is almost like early days of motion capture in some ways. You know, the idea you're capturing the motion of humans and motion capture does that digitally, more sort of, uh, you know, computer first kind of thinking. But when we pivoted from 2D experiences to 3D that was really, I think, a pivotal moment for people like Chris and myself who were out there banging the drum for more discussion around video games as an art form and, and more celebration and more dissection. And we built careers as people that would cover the industry, I think, largely on the back of this new found awareness that video games had moved from this two-dimensional two kind of thinking to this fully realized you know, real-time 3D exploration. And that's how I sold the TV show, you know, was just talking about the, this leap that we had made. But it was, it was games like Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time that really kind of underlined the potential and where we were going with all of this. Talk to us a little bit about how Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time came together and and you're you're now you know decades long relationship with Ubisoft. Do, do you still own the Prince of Persia brand, or does does Ubisoft own it, or how do, how does it all work with that? Well, uh, at this point, it's complicated because there have been the, all of the Ubisoft games. Uh, there's been the Disney movie, but uh, yeah. certainly Prince of Persia is a Ubisoft franchise now, and as witnessed the the Lost Crown. Uh, which yeah. was made right here in Montpellier. But uh, yeah, in 2001, that was when uh, Yves Guimau of Ubisoft contacted me and they had just acquired uh, Broderbund's uh, games portfolio. Broderbund had okay. kind of exploded. Uh, and uh, Prince of Persia was one of the titles that uh, Ubisoft was very interested in relaunching. And they had a great team in uh, Montreal uh, where they had a you know pretty new studio that wanted to do it. So, you know, Eve proposed this. I went to Montreal. I met the team. And uh, it, it was an interesting moment because the first, you could say the first act of Prince of Persia, which was the original 2D game, uh, which had its success in the early 90s on all kinds of consoles, followed by the Shadow in the Flame the sequel, kind of fizzled out uh, because, uh, as you say, the industry went to 3D. and We had uh, multiplayer shooters. I mean, that was what was exciting. Uh, yeah. And so to do another, uh, to complete that Prince of Persia 2D trilogy just didn't excite anyone in 1993 the way it would have a couple of years earlier. So I did The Last Express instead. And then Broderbund, uh, sort of, it's one of the last Broderbund games uh, before the company went away, was uh, Prince of Persia 3D, which was, I mean, I, I wasn't on the team for that, uh, but I had seen Tomb Raider come out. And right. uh, I mean, Tomb Raider, it was so impressive. That was the that first was amazing. game yeah. with a 
you know, an animated Prince of Persia like uh, character and you're watching, you know, it's not a first person shooter, you're, you know, you're seeing the character, you know, jump and step on platforms and do all these things. So I looked at that and I was like, oh, it's so brilliant. That's, I mean, that's Prince of Persia in 3D, you know, with a great story and a female character. Okay, it's been done. You know, there's no need to do that. And uh, so the, the, the question with Prince of Persia 3D uh, was always, how is this not going to just be, you know, Tomb Raider with a guy with uh, baggy pants and a sword? And Prince of Persia 3D, I mean, it's, you know, and it, w it was of its time. You know, I know there's a lot of players who played it and enjoyed it. Uh, yep. uh, I, I, I personally actually didn't play it past uh, uh, the, the second level. It, it just, uh, I didn't even have a PC that was, my PC would crash when I tried. And at that point, you know, I was... Uh, <laughs> You know, I was going to film school. I was interested in screenwriting and filmmaking. I, that was just sort of a period when I had stepped away from video games. So when Ubisoft approached me in 2001 about making a new Prince of Persia, I was like, okay, well, is it going to be in 3D? Because I don't know, the last 3D one wasn't fun. So then going to Montreal, meeting the team, and uh, they had done some very quick uh, sort of exploratory animation tests uh, showing how the animation could be vertical, you know, with characters, uh, you know, pole vaulting and uh, sort of Cirque du Soleil type action, not uh, which didn't exactly match the final game, but it just opened my blew my mind wide open. I was like, oh, okay, I, a 3D Prince of Persia, you know, on, on this console where the action is vertical as well as horizontal, and you can chain moves together with fluidity the way you could in the old 2D Prince of Persia, not not like winding up to take a step and then take another step, like, yes. So uh, I went to Montreal and worked with the team uh, for two years. And that, that was a really a wonderful experience. So you actually uh, moved to yeah. Montreal and, and lived in Montreal with the team. I went back and forth between LA and Montreal for as long as possible. And then at a certain point, just moved there. Yeah. Uh, either full time. And it was, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a, and it was sort of an underdog project. I mean, nobody was saying, okay, Prince of Persia is going to be a huge franchise. It was like, we've taken a, a game that was, you know, not forgotten because it was appreciated as a classic, but to be a classic 12-year-old game in 2002 meant basically a game that nobody is playing, that you can't get anywhere. You right. know, it's remembered, but it's not current. So we knew that the Sands of Time had to appeal to gamers who were too young to have played the original Prince of Persia, it had to stand on its own merits. And at the right. same time, there, there was uh, this DNA that we wanted to capture and carry forward and pay homage to. And so elements like the hourglass, uh, you know, the, the theme of time, and, and of course, just the universe and the gameplay were, you know, hopefully would feel like Prince of Persia, even though it was a different character and a different story. And... Uh, I, I, we, we were in full production during that time period. And so we, we would visit Ubisoft Montreal. I think we went a few times while they were making the game. And I, I profoundly remember, I think it's Raphael, Raphael Lacoste, uh, talking about the art and the background elements of Prince of Persia weren't based on just like historical reference. They were based on like 19th century paintings, yeah, that added a fantasy element inside of the paintings, and and just the the sort of presence and the of mind and the wherewithal to think of the artistry in the environments through that kind of prism was just mind blowing to me. It was like, oh my god, it's just layer upon layer of 
art, artistic kind of celebration and appreciation. And it, I could see it just shaping up. It ended up, I think, becoming our game of the year, won the tons of game of the year awards. I, I uh, We gave it tens, straight tens on our show. We were flipping out about it. I think, that, I think that's that must be the first time that we met, isn't it? We probably did, probably at Ubisoft Montreal. Uh, but there were this subsequent sequels and stuff as well, which were good, but they never quite hit the the magic of Sands of Time, at least from my perspective. How do you feel about, you know, where Ubi took the franchise in retrospect? Because there were several other Prince of Persia games after Sands of Time. But to me, Sands of Time is is kind of like this special magic moment in, in video game history. Yeah, well, I mean, it's certainly close to my heart. It's uh, it's special in that that's the only one of the Ubisoft uh, games of that generation uh, that that I worked on, that I was on the team. After right. Sands of Time, you know, the core team uh, with Patrice Desilet went on to develop what was going to be the Sands of Time sequel, next-gen sequel, uh, originally Prince of Persia Assassin, but right. it evolved into Assassin's Creed. And so, of course, that team stayed with Assassin's Creed I had meanwhile gone back to LA uh, after shipping Sands of Time, and I pitched the movie to uh, Jerry Bruckheimer and Disney. And yep. so I, I wrote the screenplay for that. So I wasn't involved in The Warrior Within and The Two Thrones. I, I mean, I, I knew the team, they uh, kept me in the loop of what they were doing. But of course, I don't have the same you know, relationship for uh, those sequels as I did for The Sands of Time, where it was just like we all you know, poured our hearts into it. There was there was something so special, you know. I talked to Yuri Lowenthal uh, like a year ago, talking about the uh, the remake, which I'm still very hopeful for. I hope it turns out beautiful. I don't know if you're involved with that at all, but uh, I can't I'm not, wait I'm for not the on the team, although they've they've kept me in the loop. And Yuri, by the way, is, is still a friend. Uh, we were neighbors in Los Angeles for a long time. He He's actually uh, recorded the audiobook of my making of Prince of Persia journals. So Yuri, oh, that's amazing. Uh, it, it was it was a strange experience hearing uh, Yuri reading what I had what twenty year old me had written, you know, while I was making this game. Uh, <laughs> well, Chris, I want I, talk to me about because you were I think working at Wired and and like mm. you were deep into covering all of this stuff. I, I let me hear what your thoughts were on what Sands of Time meant. And I do want to talk a little bit about the Prince of Persia movie as well, um, and and that unique position that you're in with that whole you know concept there, Jordan. But Chris, let's talk a little bit about Prince of Persia: The Sands of Time and, and this new kind of era, this new reinvention of the brand and the property of Prince of Persia that Ubisoft was uh, you know bringing out to the world through the 2000s. Yeah. So as, uh, you know, as, as, um, as Jordan says, it was never, I don't think there was any sense of like, oh man, Prince of Persia is back and it's going to be a huge <laughs> franchise now. It's like, it was more like, oh, right. Prince of Persia. Oh, they're making another. Oh yeah, that's cool. I'll, I'll check this out. Um, and, um, I played it on the GameCube. Um, and I did, I think I did get a, like a review copy at that point. It was like 20 years ago now or, or more. Yep, um, I know. They, um, I think they asked, like, did you want this on a uh, PlayStation or Xbox? And I'm like, GameCube. GameCube had the best controller. Everybody knew that. Um, and so that's what <laughs> I, I played Xbox. it on. And oh, okay, I'm I'm sorry to I'm sorry to hear that you're sitting there with a <laughs> controller trying to trying to mess with that. Although I'll say now, if you want to play Sands of Time, you know the I think the best way to do it is 
it's backward compatible on Xbox. And I have so much respect for what Xbox has done in terms of backward compatibility of this generation. Big because time. literally some of those games, like original Xbox games, you can still play them on your Xbox Series X. And you can literally just go to the store like it was an Xbox Series X game, download it, play it. Looks really gorgeous. Um, but I played it in the GameCube at the time uh, and had a blast and really was like, I got it, you know, very quickly of like, oh, like, you know, this this introduction of the dagger of time, of rewinding time, it essentially squares this circle of how do we do Prince of Persia style, you know, you're in a room, there's spikes on the ground, there's traps, instant death is everywhere. How do we do that, but then also give you that chance to not literally have to go back to the beginning of the level, which, you know, for modern modern players, players in 2003, players from 20 years ago, would be turned off by that. How do we, like, how do we do both of those things? And so, you know, and but still make it challenging because, of course, there were times when you'd run out of the sand in your dagger of time. But then the storytelling, um, the, yeah. the the fact that the prince uh, and the princess would journey together and talk with each other and help each other out. I mean, there was a very early um, use of that. I think, Jordan, you, you'd said that you were inspired by Eco. Um, Eco, definitely. It, the, yeah. Uh, well, the sense of isolation and of going through this uh, sort of haunting universe with one character whom you're trying to protect, you know, and uh, stay alive together. I mean, I, I think really Sands of Time was, it secretly belonged to two other genres uh, other than action adventure. It was uh, secretly uh, kind of a survival horror zombie story. Sure. Uh, because you're, you're the only two humans left. The world's been destroyed. It's and uh, everybody you meet is like a sand monster. And the other was uh, Hollywood film noir of the 1940s yeah. because the prince is telling the story in voiceover throughout the game. And uh, I was actually thinking of movies like uh, Double Indemnity or Sunset Boulevard, where the character, where the hero narrates the movie after he's already doomed. So it's basically, mm. okay, mm. I've, I've, I've been shot, I'm dying. And now I'm going to tell you how that happened. It all started back in the, but of course it's ancient Persia. So nobody thinks of, you know, the hard boiled detective movies, you know, with a hat and the, uh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. the doorway in the shadows, but, yep. but that was the structure. And, and, the, and that at the end you find out who the narrator has been telling the story to under what circumstances and why, and that there's a surprise. It was kind of like, we sort of built the whole game around that. Yeah. And it's so much, and I think you you sometimes you see a lot more of that in games maybe nowadays. But like at the time, yeah, completing that game and and realizing that that whole story was was structured so neatly and had been really mm -hmm. considered so much, so much more than I think even a lot of even even as games had evolved, even by two thousand three, it was it was doing what I think the original Prince of Persia had done. And it was taking another leap and it was, it was driving video game storytelling forward. It's like, now that we have animation and characters, it's like, what can we actually do to take video game narratives and elevate it again? Um, right. And I think that's really, and also, I mean, but uh, it just, it's just so it all, it all worked so neatly and so well, even down to when you, when you, when you died, you know, and you'd hear the voiceover of Yuri as the prince saying, oh, no, it wait, it, it didn't happen that way. Hold on. You know, and starting over again, everything from from, you know, even the, the player's death, 
you know, was integrated into this complete story. And it's yeah. so it's so inspiring as a writer, you know, to to engage with something like that, because you you see with what care everything has been kind of taken. Um, you know, it's not just sort of thrown together. It's like every little aspect of it has been really considered. And so it really deserved, I think, all of the um, you know, the 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 acclaim and success, I think, that followed. It was just a wonderful it, game. It, it still does. I just posted a picture of the Xbox box of the game on Instagram, and I have dozens of comments of just adoration and love. And I, I was playing it a little bit in, in uh, sort of preparation for this conversation today. And that was one of the things that struck out that stuck out for me was uh, Yuri saying, no, it didn't happen that way. Are you sure you want to quit? And I just thought, why don't more games still do that. You know, it's just so perfect. It just really interweaves this idea of a, a tale unfolding and and you're responsible for that thing. You keep it alive. Your play keeps it alive. And and the game kind of, I think we, we see text pop-ups and things like that, but not this kind of response from the protagonist. It was just so intelligent, you know? And I, it feels like, that's the playground you you got to work in with all of the team members in, uh, yeah, in it was, Montreal. It was just a great gift to be able to do that, to have the freedom to try it. I mean, it was experimental. You know, the, yeah. we didn't know if it would work. And there was a question that we asked, like, is, is it going to be annoying for the player to hear this guy droning on in past tense while I'm trying to beat this level? Is it uh, the fact that the story is being told in the past tense, but I'm trying to play it now does that is that going to make me feel like what i do doesn't matter because it's it was already in the past and yeah. the you know the correcting himself as uh, like okay if i died it means i told the story wrong it wasn't like that like we didn't know if it was i thought it was going to work but uh, we had to actually do it you know to be sure and of course were you were you writing a lot of all of that jordan oh yeah yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I was the writer on the game i that's all. amazing. Well, let's talk about the the uh, the success of Sands of Time and what that meant for uh, Prince of Persia. But I think directly it leads into the movie happening with Jake Gyllenhaal, and I like that movie. I you know I, I I thought that movie was really fun, and I really dug that it was this moment for video games. And I think it's an overlooked moment because it wasn't the massive blockbuster success of uh, Pirates of the Caribbean or something like that. But it was a really fun movie and the fact that it it came from this really important game series meant a lot to me and i could see it up on screen but i didn't write the thing what was it like to to write this movie you know to take take us back to the 20 something kid that's coming up with this whole concept and to see it on the big screen and visit the set of the i mean it must have been mind-blowing for you yeah well i, I mean i i was um I'd been interested in movies and writing screenplays, you know, for a long time. I, I almost didn't finish the first Prince of Persia because the, the screenplay that I wrote right out of college, my first screenplay got optioned and I thought I was going to become a, a wow. working screenwriter and, and like Prince of Persia was like, you know, paused, you know, six months in. It was only when that movie took a really long time to get made and there were a lot of movies and studios started to pass that I thought, you know, I'd better go back up to uh, San Rafael and finish this game. I'm glad I did. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I pitched, uh, Prince of Persia to, uh, with John August, oh, by the way, I mean, he's, was my screenwriting mentor and a great guy and a video game fan. He had played Karateka and 
so I showed him uh, the Sands of Time game that we had just done in 2003. He, he yep. already knew Prince of Persia. He's like, yeah, totally. I'll, uh, you know, I'll help you pitch this. And uh, so D Disney went for it, Jerry Bruckheimer. So I was the first screenwriter on the movie, uh, but not the last because um, yeah, movies. Bruckheimer you know, <laughs> likes to have a lot of hands on his movies. And uh, you mentioned Pirates of the Caribbean. So I had seen Pirates of the Caribbean in Montreal, like in a huge packed theater with the team of Sands of Time. We all loved it. We were, you know, it's like, yeah, I mean, this is the kind of movie that Prince of Persia should be just like a, you know, a rollicking old fashioned, you know, amazing uh, Hollywood genre yeah. pirate movie. Yeah. yeah. Just brought up to date and kind of made cool and sexy again. So that was basically the pitch. Let's do that for the, Thousand and One Nights, uh, Thief of Baghdad type movie, and they went for it. The thing was that Pirates had been such a huge success. I mean, it was like every new movie in the franchise was like a billion dollar uh, box office uh, success. Yeah. So they were planning for Prince of Persia to be that, and I just think that was just setting the expectations too high. Yeah. You know, it was at the time the most ambitious the most serious movie based on a video game yet yeah yeah there there had been uh, tomb raider which kind of set the bar before that but you know with a director like mike newell uh with uh you know the, the cast that they had ben kingsley alfred molina and just the budget i mean it ballooned to like it was i think it was almost they don't give out the numbers but i think it was almost like 200 million dollars that they spent on it wow. uh, so it was a beautiful production i mean every aspect of it the costumes the, you know the scale and to be able to visit the set and kind of look around at this incredible circus with like thousands of people and horses and a city that they'd built in the desert and think all of this came from like pixels on an apple II screen <laughs> years ago uh, that's yeah, amazing for, for a kid who loved you know movies you know that, that that was amazing but i in retrospect, I, and of course, any writer, any screenwriter will say, yeah, well, my draft was better. So I kind of still would like to see like the $70 million version of that movie with my script. Sure, sure. And I kind of feel like that would have worked. I mean, it certainly had more of me in it. Uh, it wasn't the game, The Sands of Time. It was, I mean, the story of the movie that that you saw pretty much matched the story of the script that I wrote, but every line of dialogue is different. So many of the details are different. So seeing right. the movie, this kind of funny double vision, like I can, uh, I can enjoy the movie for what it is. And it's pretty good. It could be better, but you know, for, for what it is, it's uh, it's pretty, you know, not bad summer action movie. And, and yeah. it's got, there's a lot of really nice things in it. So, and of course, like the best, you know, some of the best crafts, uh, talent in Hollywood, you know, the music, the costumes, the armory, yep. the, the, the horses, like all of it. Is it just was like shiny the, as hell. I mean, it uh, just looked like all the money went into it. I mean, that's what blew me away as a, you know, a, a critic and a viewer and a, a fan of the game and somebody that, that was in the media talking about all of this different media. I got, that's been always been my perspective on this is that these these game makers are fans of movie makers movie makers are fans of game makers you all collect toys you all have the same posters on your walls and i i just love that cross section you know and i i love the story of that that uh, merging of creative talents and and uh interests and and respect sort of crossing over and when i saw prince of persia on screen i felt that you know i felt like there was just a lot of 
effort and love that went into building it. And I don't know if it was the movie for everyone. And maybe that's kind of the thing that undoes it a little bit is that it attempts to be the movie for everyone. And maybe that shouldn't have been the case. It isn't based on a Disneyland ride where everyone goes to it. It's more than that. I mean, it, it's a compromise, you know, between yeah. so many things. And, and that sort of comes with the the territory when you're doing a movie on that scale. There's so much pressure on it for it to be the, you know, blockbuster right. of, of the summer. And uh, I thought, so how do you please the video game fan base or what they yep. imagine it to be? Yep. How do you, how do you uh, please with the, a four quadrant audience that is people of all ages, families, uh you know, adults, people who go on a, on a date, everybody has to want to see this movie. And, yeah. and then you, have, uh, there's an ambitious, uh, Mike Newell and his crew, you know, all, you know, mostly English. I mean, the film did, uh, studio work, uh, Pinewood studios in London after shooting on location in uh, Morocco. And so there were, there were very, you mentioned before the, uh, uh, what Raphael Lacoste had said about the sands of time being inspired by the 19th century uh, European Orientalist paintings. So, yes. so that's very much a European cultural orientation. In games, we call it the French touch. And yep. of course, absolutely president, uh, uh, it's absolutely present in uh, The Lost Crown, which yes. I'm excited to talk more about in a minute. But uh, but the, it, there, there was a book of uh, these Orientalist uh, paintings that... Uh, Jerry Bruckheimer sent to Mike Newell, and that's what got him excited about making the movie. It, it's it's not real. It's not the real Persia. It's this fantasy of Persia and the Thousand and One Nights filtered through this kind of 18th, 19th century European sensibility, uh, kind of this with this idea that the East is this exotic place, and and it's yeah uh, you know it's double edged. I mean it's okay. It's it's the Hollywood version, but but that was the tradition in which. Uh, you know, the filmmakers saw themselves, but at the same time, you have Jerry Brickheimer who's like, no, this movie has got to be like action. It's got to be sexy. It's got to make money. And ultimately it's, you know, it tried to negotiate that all of those things at the same time. And it's, uh, you know, it's not the same as like, you know, an artist's or a small team's like, absolutely. This is our conception. It's simple. It's strong. We believe in it. Let's go for broke. And if we fail, we tried. Jordan, I would love to see the movie that you have in in your head around Prince of Persia get made. It would be amazing if a, a streamer like Netflix or somebody yeah. reached out to you and and made that happen. That would be incredible. It was Chris, also you know the screenplay was also a moment of it. You know it was done like at that time in that context. And by the way, I've posted that screenplay on my website for free for anyone who wants to read it. Who's curious your, to see the version. your website is incredible, my friend. I think Chris can back me up with this too. It's just like you don't see a creative person in the video game industry really go through the their history. <laughs> the eras of Jordan Mechner are all represented there. And it, 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 the things you've been able to work on are so fascinating and you're unique. You know, your whole sort of tack on all of it has just been this from this unique position. And it's so impressive that you've pivoted to all of the in all of these different directions, writing comic books and illustrating your own comic books and, you know, getting your journals made. And it's really fascinating. And I was blown away by your website, jordanmechner.com. I, I wish more people in the game industry honestly took that sort of perpetual documentation uh, a lot more seriously, you know, like it, it, especially now with technology being so accessible 
um, just taking the time to shoot things and to record things and to journalizing their life a little bit more because all that is, man, and I think you know this, is inspiration for future creativity. Like somebody is going to go deep into the Jordan Mechner archives and they're going to build us the next Prince of Persia. And I think that's what that your work is all about at Digital Eclipse, isn't it, Chris? Yeah, and, yeah. Well, and that, that's, that's why, uh, yeah, and the making of Karatek is like, what a gift. Thank you, Chris, for having taken this mass of stuff because basically i just took this stuff and stuck it in a folder and, and so to pull it all out and kind of figure out the timeline and figure out like which journal entry corresponds to which floppy disk to which build of the game like you, you've actually taken what would otherwise just be a bunch of stuff in boxes Dude, and uh, most people just stick them in everybody. boxes and we never see them ever again just the fact that you and, have that stuff and you can access it is just i just got a thumbs up zoom's crazy for that you put your uh, <laughs> I was like, what the hell? What was that? I was like, how did, how did you do that? You're a superhero. Yeah. Well, and, and to be fair, like I never intended for anybody to see this stuff. Like the journal that I kept, the, uh, like, I, I truly never thought I would even let my closest friends read that, let alone right. publish it as a book. So, but you know, time will do that. The, the space of, yeah, exactly. You sort of sort of separate yourself out from who that person was and you can look at it as more of a, and also, I mean, we all, and, and again, like I've done things where I've republished old work of my own and there's always a preface that's just like, please, like, you know, let leave this, this guy didn't know what he was doing. And he was kind of an asshole. You, you should try having a TV show that exists from 1997 on the on the internet. Oh yeah, and sure. All, all the oh, shit yeah. you're saying. Right, right, people right. People still come up to me like about the Smash Brothers review. It's like I didn't get it, man. I didn't understand. Uh, you know, like <laughs> give me a break. That was yep, 25 yep. years ago. Yeah, <laughs> but they can watch it on YouTube like it was yesterday. But yeah, uh, yeah. so um, uh, uh, geez, I mean, well, first of all, before we go on, I all the talk about the movie only just put me in mind of the fact that there was this big at WonderCon. I think it was WonderCon when WonderCon was in the San Francisco. You know, there was this big press push for the for the film you know right prior to its release um and that's i think i i you know interviewed jordan but then also i inter i they had me interview uh jake gyllenhaal for that and the funniest Great. thing about it was i walked into the room where jake gyllenhaal was and as i'm walking in the first person that i encounter is nicholas cage because there's oh yeah there's a bunch of uh lego uh sands of time prince of persia sands of time lego toys that they were showing off in this hotel suite and Nicolas Cage was there doing something for a different film. And uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice. Sorcerer's Apprentice. There we go. And I walk in and, and I just walk in on this conversation between like the PR reps and Nicolas Cage, who is asking them to send some Prince of Persia Sands of Time Lego toys to him so he can, he can build them with his kid. And I'm like, this is, that's a really (laughs) weird thing to walk in on. Um, so that was a, that was a really interesting WonderCon. That's true. Yeah. Sorcerer's Apprentice. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, look, you know, this just, again, like this dream project, it really aligned with what I've always loved doing. I mean, I had this 25 year career in the media and I always loved talking with developers, especially about their older projects, trying to tease out more details about the history of them. And just this, this growing sense that, this is a medium in which, I mean, I think we can say that is just treated as disposable by right. the industry that creates yes. this stuff. Yeah. 
Um, you know, and, and as soon as a game comes out, it's forgotten about and things are thrown away and source code is lost. The stories are lost. Um, why, why is that Chris? Is it all economic or is it just that the technology just moves so quickly or a combination of it all? Like, why do you think it is treated like that? I think for a long time, and I think that, you know, I mean, 20 years ago or more than 20 years ago, I got into so many conversations with people in which I would try to essentially convince them that video games were an art form uh, that we should be taking as seriously as other art forms. And yes. even people who you'd think would get on board with this did not seem to want to take video games, right. truly take them seriously. And, you know, really just sort of considered them disposable entertainment. And it was like, well, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, this is not something we shouldn't be looking at Super Mario Brothers and talking about, you know, it's storytelling techniques. And, but, you know, it was really, it was profoundly affecting a generation and it was becoming one of the most powerful storytelling mediums, even if, even if a creator didn't go as far as Jordan did to um, integrate that kind of human interest by, you know, having like, you know, lifelike animations and story right. and soundtrack and everything, even something where the, the developer wasn't thinking about that, you would see people who got so emotionally invested into video game stories. And I think that that element of, of interactivity and control and that direct connection between you and the protagonist of the story is actually a very powerful thing. Um, it's primal, that, man. It, like, it, honestly, when I was putting the pitches together around the show, I would think back to the 80s and playing games on Atari systems and Coleco and all that. And even if the primal expression of emotion was anger because your character died mm -hmm. or your ship blew up or whatever, there, there was something profound that I recognized in that. And I would just look around my living room because I had all the games back then and I'd have friends over all the time and I would see it on the faces of the people. And that was exactly what I poured into the pitch document around EP. It's like, no, this isn't just a toy. It's not just a piece of technology. It is an emotional connection, even if they're just squares on the screen. You're emotionally mm -hmm. in on that for some right. reason. I don't I can't I can't tell you why it just is that way. And Jordan recognized that it could be so much more. And as the years went by, I think more and more people started, um, you know, uh, understanding, right, that we were yeah. dealing with an art form. Um, and I think that that the um, the sense that, A, we should be documenting this, we should be preserving this kind of stuff started to grow. Um, but then still you have people who are just like, this is just so much stuff, you know? So that's, you know, when the Strong Museum kind of came in and became a repository for so much of the physical materials, you know what I mean? Yes. You know, that was helpful when they, as they built out their expansions. and But having the stuff is one thing, but then you have to tell the story with the stuff. And so to start looking at, again, you know, to start looking at Jordan's stuff and, you know, uh, as uh, uh, essentially what my job has been for so long is, you know, the job of a journalist, right, is, you know, you have all of these scattered facts, right? And trying to find in the messiness of real life, um, the, where is the story that is taking place here? And how do I arrange these facts to show people, you know, what the what the sort of A to B like, you know, what the through line is of all of this, right? And especially when you're like talking with video game developers and trying to write the story of how did a game come together? How did this happen? How did that happen? And so when I start looking at all of this stuff and, and realizing that I can kind of triangulate a lot of this stuff from Jordan's floppy disks and documents and journal and everything like that, the fact that everything kind of matched up, 
you know, the, the second that I started making some of those connections, it got very addictive, you know, and it was like, oh my gosh, like this is coming together in such a wonderful way. And it's, it's so exciting um, to be able to do it, that it was really, truly just like this, this passion project of, of, wanting to nail it and wanting to make all the connections that I possibly could. And again, you know, thank you, Jordan, and really the rest of your family for all of the, like, you know, for the support and, you yes. know, letting us tell um, this chunk of, of your story in that way, because there's, there's other things, you know, you've, you've got replay coming out, which is a really, I mean, replay is a tremendous uh, work. I mean, I, I got, uh, you know, certainly, um, there's some subject matter similarities between replay uh, and uh, the graphic novel mouse. Um, and uh, I, it's, 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 uh, but, but even just sort of beyond the superficial sort of subject matter similarities, like there really is um, uh, a, a great deal. Um, I think, I think similar in the, the sort of meticulous telling um, of this family story in that way. And like wanting to document that and wanting to get that down and really bringing it to life in a way that I'm very excited for English, the, the sort of, it's, it's already available in French, but the, the English reading, English speaking world is going to get their hands on it really soon. And I mean, I, I can't stress enough, like really go out and, 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 and read this. And I'm not sure what yeah. the point is that I was trying to make, but all of that. And what well, 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 I'll tell you what the about point preservation is. of, of the, yes. of the people telling our stories. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I'm glad you mentioned replay because I think with me, you know, the, you know, why did I start keeping a journal when I was 17 years old? Why did yeah. I keep the journals? And when I finished a game, why did I take all my sketches and stuff that I didn't need anymore? And instead of trashing them, just stick them in a folder and stick the folder in a box and put the box in a closet. I think that that impulse, that reflex uh, is something that came from the family uh, that was passed down unconsciously. I mean, I wasn't aware of it at the time. It was really only in writing and drawing replay that I made the connection that my grandfather, who was, you know, he was a soldier in World War One on the losing side. He was a refugee uh, who fled Austria in World War II to Cuba and then to New York. Uh, he was a doctor. And when he retired, he spent three years of his retirement writing a memoir. It was like a thousand page mm -hmm. family story. You know, he and all of the letters he'd received, uh, you know, photo, uh, photos he'd kept, photo albums, postcards, e even the letter he got from the Nazi government of Austria telling him that as a Jewish doctor, he had to give up his practice and give it to an Aryan physician. He kept that letter and included it. So this thousand page, uh, you know, memoir landed in our house, you know, uh, when you know, I was 14 years old, I'd just gotten my uh, first Apple II and I was trying to learn how to program. So I wasn't thinking so much about the past. I was more excited about the future. But I think there's something about that desire to record what we know, to tell our story, because if we don't, it will disappear. And I think like, in our family and families uh, you know, who escaped Europe in that period, you know, so much was lost and so many stories did disappear. I thought it feels like an obligation, just whatever it is that that we know that we've lived, you know, to preserve it and pass it down. Well, and your so creativity that, speaks to that, too. Like the, the projects that you built, Jordan, are all these reflections of the past as well and the importance of storytelling through remembrance and, and through appreciating the things that came before. Uh, and I, I think you've had this very unique and special kind of viewpoint on the world that has, you know, made your projects incredibly exciting. But you as a person, as a creative individual, also incredibly inspiring. 
And I'm wondering when you were a kid in the 80s and you're learning all of this stuff, were there outlets for you to tap into? Were there uh, inspiring I'm sure there are lots of inspiring work, but did you see anything familiar? Did you see anything similar to that? Any any other creators that were also journaling their progress and, and that you could kind of read and dive into and be inspired by? Yeah, that's a great question. You, you know, I think I was, I mean, I was voracious, you know, as, as a kid, you know, comics, movies, animated movies, and, and then games when they came along. I, I I, I absorbed it all, but I also wanted to find out who made them and how they were made. Right. And that was really hard to find out. You know, there yes. was no internet. Like it wasn't like, you know, when a movie came out, there wasn't like a PR campaign to, hey, meet the creators, read, no. you know, read the screenplay. Like you it couldn't find- It was all Starlog magazine, man. I mean, yeah. And, and I subscribed to Starlog and- <laughs> It was great. <laughs> I read everything. You know, I, I would even, uh, I mean, I-, I I couldn't subscribe to Billboard magazine, uh, you know, because it was too expensive. But I would go to the newsstands, like in New York, and I would stand there and read each issue until the the news vendor kicked me out and said, "Kid, you can't just stand here and read that." But I would try <laughs> to read it every day to find out, you know, what movies were getting made, what, uh, you know, what was going to happen. So there were a few people who published their uh, their memoirs or their journals. I remember reading. Uh, Coppola's, uh, actually Eleanor Coppola's diary of the making of Apocalypse Now. Wow. Uh, which I don't think it stayed in print very long, but I got a hold of a copy and that was fascinating. Uh, there were a few movies that had the screenplay uh, printed, published. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid was one uh, by William Goldman, mm -hmm. uh, great screenwriter Incredible. who also wrote a book about screenwriting. There yeah. were so few books like that. Every time, every one that I could find, I would read. Uh, Steven Soderbergh published his diaries of the making of Sex, Lies, and Videotape in the early eighties about the time that I was, you know, writing screenplays and wanting to become a, you know, a screenwriter. So all, all of those were really valuable to me. And, and as well as memoirs, autobiographies, uh, Akira Kurosawa, Jean Renoir, uh, uh, Louis Bunuel wrote great memoirs. So I just read them all. It was just the only information I could get. And for games, what we had was uh, soft talk, you know, a short lived, but so important, uh, magazine that Al Tomervik and Margot Comstock started. And that was the only magazine that I could read and find out who were the people who made these games, who were the names on the screens. That's why I sent uh, Karateka to Broderbund because I'd read the profile of Broderbund oh, software. Wow. Wow. Uh, Doug and Gary and Kathy Carlston that made them sound like just the greatest, most decent human beings on the planet. And I was like, yeah, that's where, I, that's where I want to go. You know, when I'm done with college, that's where that's who I want to publish my games. I and love Soft it. Talk had the top 30, so we could sort of track which games were bestsellers. You know, that was my ambition to crack that, uh, to grow up and crack that Soft Talk top 30 list. That's awesome. Hey, listen, in 2008, there was another Prince of Persia game. And Ubisoft, I think, kind of went in the Prince of Persia movie direction by trying to build a game for everybody. And, and and I remember liking the game and appreciating a lot about it, but it certainly, to me as a player, didn't feel like Sands of Time. It didn't feel like what I, the, the Prince of Persia uh, property evoked for me. And I'm curious how it felt for you to play that game. And, I, you know, I'm not asking you to slam it or whatever. I just I'm curious from your perspective there, Jordan. Yeah, well, I mean, I sort of. I was on the sidelines watching that project evolve. Uh, ben Mattis, the producer at Ubisoft Montreal. Great, great. And there were so many yeah. uh, great, so much great talent on, on that team and great aspirations. I mean, it, it was a, a young team too. Like they, they made mistakes on the way that they learned from, which, you know, is natural. There's so much that's great about that game. 
and and so much that uh, they achieved. And that the 2008 Prince of Persia has its own fans. I mean, when I, I meet people, people love it. Uh, uh, yeah. Some, you know, there's, everybody's got their favorite Prince of Persia. For some, it's the 2D. For some, it's the Sands of Time trilogy. For some, uh, Warrior Within is like yep. the high point. Yep. But the 2008 just has its really dedicated uh, fan base. And uh, yeah, it just, it just, you know, like the movie, it just didn't quite hit the bar that they would stay with that and then make that a series and keep doing more like that. It like it, it worked in so many ways, but it, it didn't catch fire a hundred percent on all, you know, on all cylinders. Yeah. I feel like if you had any perspective on where it came from, you could see that, you know, and I think that, I, I don't know. Did you feel the same way, Chris, when, when that one came out? Um, yeah, the 2008 one. That's, I mean, that's Nolan know, North as the prince. And I love Nolan. He's he's amazing. But that, that like I, when I reviewed it, it was like, well, this is the the prince of Southern California. This just does not <laughs> this does not feel like Prince of Persia to me right now. <laughs> it's been I did play. It's been a quite a long time since I played it. But I mean, that that's the one where you couldn't die. Right. I mean, that's the one yeah. where I just sort of rebooted as Prince of Persia. Yeah. I mean, I antithetical felt like to the whole concept of Prince of Persia. Well, I mean, I think it was sort of taking the idea of the dagger of time and maybe taking yes. it, you know, perhaps a little bit too far because ultimately it's like you do, you know, I'm I'm always, you know, on the inside of game development now, I'm always the one sort of like pounding the table about like we we have to, you know, be um accessible to all types of players. Everybody, That's yes. why yep. when you're playing like Karataka remastered in the making of Karataka, like there is an option, an option to give yourself more lives if you want to, if you want to do that, because you know, I want everybody to be able to see all of the, the the commentary and all of the little pieces. And you know, if you're restricting somebody to that one life, um, you're block, you're just you're sort of blocking off a big chunk of players essentially from ever being able to see that. So I I totally totally get the um the the thought process behind that. Um, and but I think I guess the, I think the solution that they came up with to get beyond that. And again, you know, it's one of those things where especially in um, in the Xbox 360 era, you started having telemetry, right? Because the Xbox 360 was the first console that was constantly connected online, which means that for the first time, game developers, you know, for the first time, really on consoles, like, especially like game developers the could now see the analytics and exactly what players were doing. And they were yeah. finding out crazy thing. I mean, the things that I would start hearing was like, did you know, not for Prince of Persia, but like there was a certain game, which was, um, you know, that I, I very big game that I knew a developer on who was like, 90 X percent of the players played through this entire game using just the standard weapon and never changed, you know, off of the standard <laughs> weapon um, or like, you know, 95% of players didn't get past level two, you know, on, on this game or that game because they start learning these things. And so I think that we were in that era where that telemetry kind of started affecting things. It was like, Oh no, no one is playing. You know, we have game developers who are spending, you know, years of their life working on, you know, uh, a game with, you know, 10 levels and 90% of people are playing levels one and two. And there's all this game that like literally nobody is playing. How do we get them to see all of the content? And so I think there has been a lot of thought about that now, but now I think you just have maybe a lot more nuanced decisions that are happening about right. how do we get people to move further? How do we like 
if a player is starting to struggle in an area, how do we make that area a little bit easier for the player? But importantly, without the player knowing that we're doing that, because because what you will do is you will cause a player to become agitated or irritated if the game because, you know, we also this is the uh, this is also the era where we saw you die three times and the game would be. Looks like you're not very good at this game. Yeah. You're inadequate <laughs> as a person. You want us to put the game on baby mode for you? Press X if you want the game to be on baby, little baby mode for baby. So like, but game, but the thing is that games still do that, but it's under the, it's, it's all secret now because, you know, yeah. so essentially now, so, I mean, again, so that like that solution to it was, was, it was too obvious. It was too obvious because they're like, oh, don't worry. You just can't die. And like that removes, I think, a lot of those stakes. And so it was it was a really, really interesting experiment. And it was like the only time they ever did <laughs> like not only like the Prince of Persia team, but I think it I think a lot of people. Yeah, a lot of developers learned from that. Big and learned from that. Yeah, yeah. It was very yeah. it was very interesting. Yeah. Well, all of that is to say that <laughs> The Lost Crown feels like a miracle and i i, I don't have you guys had time yeah chris i don't I'm, think I'm you've playing, had time i'm playing it play. right now and in fact talking about these past games and the balance challenge is just making me just think of, of just how well the montpellier team has nailed it with the lost crown it's just so much fun there's uh, a sense of control and yet of like the girl is just at the edge of not quite knowing what you're supposed to do and what's going on, but then somehow you find it and it's just so satisfying when you do. It, it, I mean, this Metroidvania take is such a perfect fit. It's hand in glove with the whole, what I remember from Sands of Time and the original Prince of Persia games. It just feels like this, uh, not a, not necessarily an evolution of it, but just this perfect iteration on it. Like it's a great combination. I love the homages to the Sands of Time, and but I also love it's diehard Metroidvania. You know, it feels analogous and very much in the vein of Metroid Dread, which is one of my favorite Nintendo Switch games. Like they just sit side by side. They're so fantastic. Were you a little bit nervous about that as a direction for Prince of Persia? Or did you like that idea right from the beginning? Or? You know, I've never been a Metroidvania player. Yeah, You know, I can't say that I've played any Metroidvania game deeply. Uh, so like, I mean, the team knew exactly what it was and what they wanted to do. Uh, I mean, 2D, of course, is like a really smart way to acknowledge the origins of the series while also bringing in everything that people you know, loved and remember about Sands of Time and so forth. So really as a gamer, it's like my worry was just that it would be too hard. That yeah. uh, I'm, I'm not a hardcore gamer, you know, it's, and combat is something that I've never been good at. You know, originally I didn't even want there to be combat in Prince of Persia. It was my yeah. friend Tony who convinced me, it's like, no, it's just avoiding traps is not fun enough on its own. You have to add sword fighting. So, uh, you know, my worry was just that, uh, like learning all of these different moves and abilities and combos would just be too much for me and I wouldn't be able to finish the game. I'd have to you know, give the controller to someone else so I could watch them finish. But I'm actually totally hooked. I'm so proud of my, my I mean, you, 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 would, you, you would laugh condescendingly if you saw me actually play, but I'm so proud of my combat abilities <laughs> at Sargon <laughs> now and how far I've gotten and the, the combos that I can do. Of course, then when I go on YouTube and I see like the amazing things that other players are already doing. Like the, I think the game officially releases tomorrow, right? So everyone's just, no, yes. nobody, 
at this point has been playing the game for more than 48 hours. But uh, the things that they do, uh, this performance is just virtuoso. And I'm like, wow, that's uh, there's just so much freedom uh, to, you know, to play and, and to fight your way and to explore in the direction that you want. It's uh, I'm, I'm really, really enjoying it. So it's uh, yeah, it's so much. Uh, I hate to say it's more fun than I thought it would be because I thought it was going to be good, but it's it, it's it even surpasses that. That's great. Chris, have you had a chance to play it yet? I know that developers hardly ever have time to play games. No, and, we, you know, and I'm not a journalist anymore either. So, you know, again, like there was this time in my life that was, you know, from probably around the year like 1999 to the year 2020, in which uh, they they just sent me every video game for free, uh, like two yeah. weeks before it came out. Uh, yes. So I got to play everything, you know, before. But the other thing is, you know, it's interesting being on the other side of that because um i would be playing things before there was any discourse about them whatsoever in terms of like people had not set any expectations at all and so it is very exciting it's it's exciting to be like anticipating like oh yeah it comes out tomorrow i'm going to get my physical copy in the mail tomorrow like it's very it's it's exciting to be um anticipating something that has gotten you know such tremendous reviews you know be really excited about something and you know 2D Metroidvanias. I love 2D Metroidvanias, so I'm 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 very excited. And it's and again, like- what I think is wonderful is that we've gotten to this point now where um I think there was this there was this time period in which if you if your game was going to be taken seriously as a big AAA release, it had to be in 3D. And it had right. to be in 3D and you had to be you had to you, you couldn't be confined to a 2D access because that was that was like oh that was an Xbox Live arcade game. That was right. not a that was not a real video game. That was like a throwback thing. But now that we can finally look and say, yeah, we can do what we can put out a big Prince of Persia release and it can be the character can be locked to a 2D plane that ultimately that is what makes the most sense for, um, you know, that it, it seems to be a very good match of the the concept in the genre here. So I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Can't wait. Oh, it, it is so wonderful. Um I want to talk. I know we're running long here, but I do want to talk a little bit about uh, because now it feels like the artistry is finding that balance with this data and the analytics. And I feel like AI has always been a big part of video games, but it will become an increasingly bigger part. But before that, I just want to ask Jordan about working and living in Montpellier and the game is being made down the street. Did that, did you make that happen? Like how, how is that real? How, how are you living in Montpellier at the same time as this excellent new Prince of Persia game is made out of Montpellier? Yeah, well, it's more than a coincidence. Uh, I came to Montpellier to make a Prince of Persia game, which ended up getting canceled and uh, never shipping. So, and that okay. story is told in replay. Okay. Uh, so that ended. Uh, but there has been desire like within Ubisoft and among different teams to do a Prince of Persia game pretty much constantly. Uh, and it's been a long time since the last one. So many of the people on the Lost Crown team are people that I worked with you know, on that canceled uh, Prince of Persia project, but also whom I had worked with uh, before on other things, whom I've known for many years. I mean, it's an incredibly... Uh, deep and talented studio, you know, for such a deep a bench. Early small it's, town. Yeah. No, so no, many and, good and before, people. Yeah. And we talked about the artistry. I mean, even on the sands of time in Montreal, you know, there were some uh, people who had, you know, come from France to work on the project and their contribution, uh, you know, was essential. So just the, the long history of 
you know, of, of making Prince of Persia games, of appreciating Prince of Persia, and also just the cultural background, uh, that there's just so much uh, waiting to be uh, brought to a Prince of Persia game. And so The Lost Crown was, you know, really was able to draw from, uh, you know, people who had worked on past iterations, people that I had worked with before, others who were coming from other projects, and also the research that we did for previous Prince of Persia games, which never made it into any game, but uh, some you know fascinating directions that we explored. You know, so the, doing The Lost Crown, the team kind of had all that as a starting point, and they looked at That's it and great. said, okay, so what are we going to take? What fits? What makes sense? And one of the things that you know, I appreciate so much, as, and it's always important to me as a gamer, is just the universe, the graphic look, the music. Yes. And yes. the feeling of it because the gameplay can be brilliant, but if something about it turns me off, I'm just like, nah, I just don't want to spend 20 hours in this universe. I'll go, you know, I'll go do something else. But uh, The Lost Crown really drew me in. It's the style is so appealing to me, it evokes Persia uh, more yeah. than any Prince of Persia game of the past, and that includes The Sands of Time. You know, of course, we looked at uh, Persian culture, but also at, at the, as Ra Raphael told you, you know, the 19th century Orientalist art and the, the Lost Crown is different. It, it really went back to the roots of uh, Persian culture and mythology in many ways. The music yes. is Persian and you can play the game in Persian. I mean, that's how I've been playing it. Yeah, uh, I mean, I love this, this whole sort of it's, cultural sensitivity kind of uh, attitude that is pervasive around the art that we're consuming these days. I think it's, it's beautiful. More, yeah, and, and it's more than sensitivity. Yeah. It's really tapping into something that's uh, very deep and rich that brings something exciting. Exactly. Audiences don't know uh, because yeah. I'm 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 playing the Lost Crown and I'm I'm seeing the Seamorg and hearing you know my my uh, combat instructor explain to me about Atka and I, I get shivers. I'm like, it's. You know, this is something that's thousands of years old that I've I've read about in like, in, but I've never seen it like brought together in like a modern, you know, appealing, fun kind of framework like this. It it just and it's it draws on anime, it draws on a lot of uh, different traditions, but it just fits together so well. So I think the team has made really, you know, really smart choices. And I've, I mean, I've been sort of they've shown me like at stages sort of where they were, and obviously I've been rooting for them and for this project. But it's just you know so satisfying to see it the way it's all come together. I'm I'm so proud of what this team has done. It's an amazing game. I hope it's a blockbuster. I was going to be my question. It was like, how did you not? Because I know you didn't work on this like firsthand or on a regular basis. How did you not go in and play it and check in on it all the time? And how did they keep it from you, especially if you're in the same city like that? But it sounds like you did do a little bit of that. But there's still a lot of fresh stuff for you too. Well, I, I mean the. They knew exactly what they were doing. I mean, and their friends, yeah. you know, I know what they're capable of. Like there's, it wouldn't have been interesting for me or for them, for me to come in every now and then and say, oh, why don't you do yeah. more like this? That's <laughs> like, what, what, what's, it's like either you're there every day and you're part of the team or you're not. And anyway, I had my own full-time projects while the team was making The Lost Crown, I was writing and drawing replay. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, after the project that I had uh, just come off of, doing a graphic novel, you know, was just the perfect thing. And it was also, you know, a way to that bring together- That was the Prince of Persia project that didn't happen, then you went to the graphic novel? Yeah, yeah, I had just been working yeah. for several years on a, a canceled AAA project. Uh, yeah. So starting another video game right away, 
you know, it just wasn't the right moment. Like all, yeah. all my life, I sort of alternated between video games and movies or graphic novels, big projects, small projects. You right. know, after the, the Persian movie, which was a cast of thousands, you know, I ended up being just, you know, one of the screenwriters. But the thing on the screen, I mean, it was wonderful, but it wasn't exactly what I had written. After that, yeah, I that, did that sense of authorship. It was my first uh, graphic novel, which was, I worked with, you know, a couple, you know, a, a team, uh, two artists, husband and wife. It was the three of us. It's 480 pages, and we did it exactly the way we wanted. So that's like the opposite of a uh, Hollywood, you know, summer movie. So yeah. So after the canceled Prince of Persia project, uh, writing and drawing replay was the right thing for me. And when the team came together to do the Lost Crown, I was like, yes, you know, great, you know, uh, all power to them. And it's. Uh, I think it it's worked out perfectly for all concerned and for players as well who now get to play the last crown. Yeah. yeah, it's it's amazing, and I can't wait for the Sands of Time remake. Let's talk a little bit about the Prince of Persia as a property and the ownership. Like I'm a little like I'm in the dark. Do you, do you own it still, or does Ubisoft own it, or do you co like how how does it work in terms of copyright and ownership? The best answer I can give is it's complicated. Yeah. But uh, all Prince of Persia games are going to be Ubisoft. I think that's th th that's a simple answer for gamers. Okay. So the games, Ubisoft, but you have creative freedom and license to build other things around Prince of Persia. Uh, well, there's also Disney. Ah. He <laughs> so, said it was complicated. Yeah, yeah. It is. And a short answer. And, and maybe not so, so interesting. I mean, what's... <laughs> I think what gamers need to know is that, you know, you know, they've got uh, the games to play. And then for myself, like my own creative involvement with Prince of Persia, I think is best expressed through my art at this point, through uh, the, uh, you know, the drawings that I've done through replay and, uh, you know, telling the sort of this, the story behind the story. I, th I think it's, it's really perfect the way it's, uh, the way it's landed. Yeah, big time. And and, uh, and the road is long and who knows where all of this leads, right? I mean, I, I would not be shocked to to see that we get a Jordan Mechner scripted Prince of Persia movie on a I mean, I I think that's that's something that should happen. Absolutely. And and sequels to Lost Crown, but then also Prince of Persia, we know can work in 3D and some new AAA 3D Prince of Persia games would be incredible as well. And, and we know comics. that time doesn't flow in just one direction. That is true. We do know that. We, we've learned that from some great games. Okay. I, I don't want this to be a downer, but I, do, I am fascinated by what's happening around authorship. And I think it relays to everything that we've been talking here and, and, uh, and what artificial intelligence is doing and, and are sort of, you know, mach machine learning and analytics and all of this sort of data driven, you know, because you created Prince of Persia for you. You know, with all of the things that you knew, but you created it based. I, I'm. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I feel like there was a sense of ownership on this concept, and you hoped that the world would like it. You know, and I. I don't. Are games can they be made like that anymore? Why don't we start with you, Chris? And is AI like I'm talking about new ideas and new games. Is is it all about to be radically different from the way that we know and love this medium? I don't know. I was reading a book on um, 
was reading a book on my on my Kindle uh, the other day, and um, uh, every time you know, uh, Kindle shows ads right for like other stuff you might like. Uh, and, you know, you you put it to sleep and you wake it up. And I I um, all yesterday um, I was being uh, uh, fed ads for um, AI generated like children's books, oh, um, which are clearly just like ai generated image ai generated book i i went and looked on amazon author that doesn't exist you know book that doesn't exist um you know pay a dollar 99 for this 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 weird thing um this thing and yeah. for this for this for this monstrosity um and i hope that that ends soon i think there are i mean certainly there are going to be i mean ai is it you know everybody has been using um you know i i i used machine learning uh you know in photoshop you know at some point to you know um you know clean up a scan or a, a scan of a box or something like that right i mean we're using like yeah content to wear fill you know we're using it right things, now with your like, two backgrounds <laughs> sure right yes. right yeah um you know but then you know the the sort of overblown like we are going to have uh ai you know write the entire script for this video game or or write an entire book i mean i i as a you know, again i mean as a both a a a, a reader a, a consumer of things i mean i'm i am watching films ultimately to feel a connection with the director and with the story that they're trying to get across to me a a fellow human um yeah. i'm reading books for the same reason i'm not simply just sitting around trying to absorb whatever content is 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 thrown at me by by a machine uh, i feel like that's an incredibly bleak future um i think that we we will certainly see ai integrated but i mean in a way that um you know helps uh human artists essentially um deal with certain aspects of their work um but the 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 sort of the, the belief now that human creativity is going to be replaced by robots i mean i'm not saying it's not going to happen uh, I'm just saying that if it does happen, it's it's it is a dystopia that we yeah. should be we should be sad of of approaching. Do you think there's correlation with the way that so much it, we talked a little bit about this, but so much development transition to analytics and data driven? I mean, I think the artistry in the medium was to find a way to use that data and to uh, you know throw art back at the at the player. Um, and hide that it was being, you know, led by these numbers and these analytics. And now yeah, it feels I mean, we're on the know, precipice of it being like in real time manipulation. <laughs> like it could be really weird. You know, data is data. And um, you it, it's, it's all about how you use it and how you interact with it, you know, coming up again on um, the idea of that, that Jordan talked about, you know, in the movie business, that that uh, that pervasive sense of, well, is this hitting the four quadrants? Is this hitting the four quadrants? What about, you know, and it's like if you make a movie that would resonate with female audiences, you know, thank goodness, you know, it's like, were they, you know, how how um, 
uh, how hard were they hammering the four quadrants idea on a huge breakout hit like Barbie, which if yeah. you're trying to hit the four quadrants would, you know, would simply um, never have been made, you know, you know, you, you can't, you can take that data and you can look at that data, but then this, the smart thing to do is to realize when you need to, you, you don't just make everything for that data. I mean, that's how you get, you know, lowest common denominator stuff is if you're just looking at, it's like, yes, it is a common denominator across all people, but you're not going to make something that, that, that breaks out. Right. Chris, I think you said something very important that uh, the reason that entertainment appeals to you and interests you is because it was made by somebody. Yeah. And it, it's when we look at a painting or play a video game or see a movie, it's like, it's because for a moment we're experiencing the world through the eyes, through the brain of the people who created it. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, I think if you take that away and you say, well, no, the, uh, take a painting, you know, whether, whatever, a painting by Van Gogh. And it's, we, we just treat this as an image is, is, a an AI capable of creating a painting that will be, uh, that will look enough like an undiscovered Van Gogh that everybody would believe that it is and that we would like it, you know, that, you know, a focus group would like it just as much as the actual Van Goghs. Maybe that's possible. Would that have any interest? Not for me. It's, yeah. I think it's, uh, you know, the thing that's interesting to me about Barbie is that it was made by Greta Gerwig and yeah. mm -hmm. I love her movies. I, I've seen them all. So that, you know, that collision between how do you make a four quadrant, you know, blockbuster for Mattel and be Greta Gerwig and still do your own thing. It's interesting to see that uh, worked out, you know, whether, you, you know, you like the movie or not, it's like, to me, that's what interests me. And, uh, you know what's funny about that movie? Of the Writers Guild, uh, you know, the Screenwriters Guild, and uh, you know, we just uh, went through a long strike. You know, the actors as well, just to try to ensure that writing movies and acting in movies were jobs that could continue to be done by people who could earn their living doing that and reach an audience that way. And so, you know, we, we fought to try to make sure that that would stay the case for the next generation. And you know, by most counts. It, uh, you know, it was a qualified victory that, you know, the issue is still there. How is this technology going to be used and by whom, uh, you know, I mean, we can speculate, but it's, of course, we would wish that it would be a tool that would be used along with all the other tools we've developed so far by creators, you know, with good intentions to try to uh, achieve, uh, you know, something greater. But uh there, you know, if you're, if, if, again, like there's so many, I think there's a lot of people that want to be idea people. And I think a lot, I think the AI really appeals to idea people, right? The sort of person who is like, I came up with a great idea. That's 90% of the work here. Why don't you write it? You know, and we'll split the profits. And it's like, they love the idea. I think of being able to, oh, I came up with my award-winning idea. Now I'll just sort of enter it into the computer. The computer will spit out my, you know, the, the process of my great idea, but it's like, but the but but that's it's like the work, the actual work that goes into it is is the quality and it is the thing that you um you know for any like create you know for any novel or movie or game or whatever it is, you know, somebody was um at some point in the absolute pit of despair working on this thing, thinking <laughs> that it was never gonna be any good. Um and it made probably losing sight of, you know, what was going to happen at the end. And it's just that that level of desire and work and craft of, of every level of it is it's what's so important. And I mean, you know, again, like 
you know, when you look at something like the making of Karataka, it's like AI could spit out a video game that looks like Karataka. But when you start asking questions of like, well, how did this get there? There are no answers. There's yeah, nothing but what's on the screen, right? But when you start digging into, you can't, you know, when you start looking at the making of Karataka and when you realize just how how much work and passion went into it, you understand where it came from. And again, AI can't create anything without being it without basing it on all of that, all of that human work, as you say, it can yeah. show a simulacra of it, but it, it, it cannot generate it. Yeah, let me talk about Barbie for a second here, though. I think that what's interesting <laughs> about Barbie, because it's great that 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 has worked its way into this conversation, because I thought that was an incredible film that should have an impossible movie that really mattered and resonated with a lot of people. But the stuff that I think you could kind of fault the movie for are the things where the movie looks like it's trying to appeal to a four quadrant audience, you know, like studio led ideas that have seeped into it. And you can kind of point that out. They sand it like, and I'm not throwing shade at the Will Ferrell sort of Mattel, uh, you know, stuff in there, but it felt different and it felt a little less authentic and fun and risky than the rest of the, incredible work in there that authorship is so bloody important like we want even if we don't know the names we want to know that the, that we're connected to the the human you know condition the human drive to build this art for us yeah well and it's the act of creating something is part of it it's not just yeah. the result uh I, I mean i think i think this is probably part of the reason that i've been so drawn lately to drawing with pen and ink on paper right uh, because it's i mean i started as a hobby you know just drawing from life in sketchbooks and the goal wasn't to produce a good drawing uh, like my journals in the beginning I, I just did it because i enjoyed the act of drawing and then i would turn the page in the sketchbook and even if nobody ever looked at that page again i had had the experience of looking at this scene or whatever it was drawing it and that was like a if I was in the zone, that was a moment, a good moment. So, uh, so I think to take a drawing, to look at a drawing, you're also looking at what the artist experienced when they were drawing it. And if there was no moment, there was no experience of drawing it that brought satisfaction or struggle or whatever it was to the person holding the pen. What's the interest of the drawing? It's not the same. It's uh, yeah. a drawing is not an end. It's also uh, the act of doing it. I think of the, uh, you know, the traditional Japanese archery where it's not about whether the arrow hits the target. It's about the perfection of the gesture of, right. of releasing the arrow. And if, and if there's something wrong with that moment of, of release, like that's, that's a separate thing from, you know, is there, you know, where in the target did the hole land? So, yeah. Yeah. And, and you can machine a, re a, you know, a replication of emotion and, but you, I don't know if you can machine emotion, you know, I don't, I don't know if you can. And, and the other thing that I think is going to be true with a lot of AI created art, it, like we already exist in this world of personalized entertainment and everybody's looking at everything through their own little portal. But if we're also the generators of exactly what we want to see through these AI tools, doesn't the idea of an audience completely just go away? I mean, it's, it's just a, a billion audiences of one looking at their prefab you know, pseudo sequel to something that somebody already likes, as opposed to something inventive and brand new generated from, from human passion and, and, and uh, creativity. 
Yeah. God, it's a big topic. <laughs> I, I don't think that any, I mean, if anything, it's a ho- trying to inject some hopeful ideas into this uh, dystopian reality that's just come crashing down on the three of us. Yeah. Uh, I don't, none of the traditional art forms have gone away, like with the invention of new technologies, you know, right. analog, digital, yeah. people still pick up a guitar or a violin and play music in a room for other people who are sitting in the room listening to them. You know, the fact that we can now record, you know, a classical music performance with, you know, amazing fidelity and transmit it uh, around the world, you know, and you can't hear the difference. Still, there's something about having somebody in the room with you playing the music for you and you're hearing it at the same time as they're playing it. That's so precious that people will, you know, stand in line and, you know, pay money and, you know, endure having to go to the bathroom, you know, in order to experience this. So, you know, so theater, puppetry, you know, home cooked meals, all of these things, I think are going to be with us even after technological solutions have been found that produce results that in some objective way are just as good. You know, we still want the original. Beautifully said. You can add a 2D uh, Metroidvania in 2024 to that list as well. (laughs) Gentlemen, this has been a a beautiful conversation. I'm so glad this came together. Thank you both for taking the time out of your busy schedules to meet with me and chat with me. Jordan Mechner and Chris Kohler are two of the best in the game industry that I've ever had the pleasure to work with and meet and and enjoy their work. Uh, So thank you both, gentlemen. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to hit that thumbs up button if you dig the video or review if you hear this on an audio podcast. Thank you. We will see you soon. And until then, play forever. Play forever.